Good, uh, well, I would say good morning, but it's not. It's good afternoon because I recorded this podcast earlier and it was a disaster. It didn't work because I need new equipment because, uh, well, just because. So there you go. But it is March, I think, 16th now, 2015. And this, of course, is the Monday Morning Analyst. The second one I've recorded today. But hey, that's how committed I am to this podcast that I'm going to do it twice. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the most important things in combat sports from the weekend. Now, we only do it in about 30 minutes or less, so we got to keep it tight. But we'll, of course, get to UFC 185, Anthony Pettis losing his title to Rafael Dos Anjos, but of course, a whole lot more there. We'll talk about a little bit of boxing. I'm probably not going to get to the Jean Pascal fight, but I will get to uh, Andre Berto and Jose Cito Lopez from the Premier Boxing, boxing Champion Show from Spike TV. And, of course, we'll also get to the IBJJF Pan Am Games that took place over the weekend as well. I watched about 75,000 hours of sport jiu-jitsu, lost probably 1,000 followers on Twitter, but I had a good time doing it nonetheless. I think I was the only journalist, hell, it seemed like person, tweeting about what was happening at that event. So we'll talk a little bit about that and, and try to make it all palatable. Uh, I apologize that it's not on video this week. At least I, I may be able to convert it later, but you might be listening to this certainly on audio. Just a ton of technical problems, and I need to get this out the door, so I went ahead and made it audio. I might try and convert it to video later, but please forgive me. I sincerely apologize. I'm doing the best that I can. All right, now, with that out of the way, follow me on Twitter at SBNLukeThomas. You can email me at luke.thomas at SBNation.com, and you may also... Like me on Facebook, facebook.com slash LukeTSports. I try to make it interesting for you. And they try to not have the content overlap too much either. All right, so let's just go ahead and get right into it. The biggest event of the weekend, I think the last weekend we had, oh, I have to do a big overview, but I think last weekend we had done a bit where I had gone in chronological order again. I don't want to do that. I want to start with UFC 185, and then I'm going to go to IBJJF and probably touch on boxing at the end because I know some of you guys just don't have a huge interest necessarily in boxing, but it, it is kind of relevant. Um, but real quickly, the big overview from the weekend. And I want to talk about um, being wrong. Because it's important to talk about being wrong. Especially when you're in my line of work. Now, as you may know, I do predictions for MMAfighting.com. And they're up and down. I think so, a bunch of readers have measured my results over time. And I'm about 62 63%, which A, is higher than I thought it would be. And B, still doesn't mean much. Um, you know, being right more often than not. But it's just a weird thing that predictions bring out of people. When you do them, because when I do them, I, I certainly don't do them as a joke, but I do them with zero expectation that they'll actually be correct, which isn't to say that I'm not trying either, but the reality is we deal, I've been covering MMA in some capacity for about 10 years, uh, pretty intently for a, a huge portion of those years. I watch more fights than ever, and not just fights, but I watch more combat sports. I watched more jujitsu than I think in anybody in MMA journalism for sure, over the weekend. Um, I practice it. Um, not very well, but I do my best. I'll be covering, to some extent, the NCAA wrestling tournament later this week as well. And, of course, to the extent that there's judo in the Olympics, I'm going to try and touch on that. So, like, I really try to have my hands in as much as possible. I'm calling fights later this week uh, for a local organization. And so, I've been exposed to MMA enough to know that it is... A bad idea unless you are unbelievably dedicated and have the requisite amount of information to take predictions seriously. Right? So it's it's both th things that you need to worry about. It is both that you have uh, the time and energy and resources to commit 
to watching tape and understanding what's happening and reading up on interviews and understanding where these guys might be heading into a fight. It's quite another to have the maybe the requisite insider knowledge. Like these guys, for most of us, they have a fight and then they go away and then they come back relatively close to fight week. You hear from them again and that's your exposure to them. But there's this whole other world they have where they go back and they would learn on learn things. How was their camp? What did they focus on? Did they get the right kind of preparation? Was something going on in their personal life? It's why you have, and we'll get to her later, Joanna uh, uh, Janjacek, who goes away for an extended period of time after her last fight, then comes back and has rapidly improved takedown defense. Now, takedown defense that was clearly built off of the style she had before, but it had jumped another level. And so that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. There's just too many variables from what these guys do when they're not away, or excuse me, when they are away. There's too many variables in the fight game itself. You zig when you're supposed to zag. All you can reasonably try to do is make a case for what you think might happen using the available information that's there. Anyway, it's just kind of funny to see some of the results. Like, people being like, well, I think I got half of them right. I think I got like 50% of them right, which is not good, certainly. Not horrible either, but not great. But um, for this past UFC 185, but it's just weird to get the reactions. So at one, do not take my predictions seriously. Even when I get them all right, occasionally I will get them all right. There'll be a UFC car while I ace the whole thing. Or even a Bellator car where it's four or five fights, I'll get all of them. World Series of Fighting, same thing. It, it's happened quite frequently. Um, but it does, that, that, that doesn't mean anything either. Because, you know, maybe that was a situation where you got a little lucky with some of the fights or... Maybe there's a couple of guys you knew a little bit more about. Maybe there's a couple of DC guys whose preparation I was more intimately familiar with. But even that means nothing. That's still just kind of playing luck there. And it's just impossible to do that consistently over time without a huge amount of information available to you that I simply do not have at the space at which I operate. But it's more than that. Like, I, I definitely, and we'll talk about this when we get to it, I definitely had overestimated some of Anthony Pettis' abilities. And I need to sort of come to terms with that, and I will when we discuss that main event here in just a few minutes. But there's this, like, stigma about being wrong that I find a little hard to understand. Folks, if your job is to just do what I do, which is I, some of my job is reporting, some of my job is collecting facts, some of my job is doing interviewing, some of my job is analysis, some of my job is a mix of all of those things, and so many other obligations as well. It is impossible to go a week without saying a half the things that you may have uttered being wrong. It's impossible. I think fans kind of home in on certain moments where you're either really right or really wrong, and that's fine. I think it's an inevitable human response to some degree. But there's no shame in being wrong, um, as d- depending on your approach to it. It's, it's being right in a consistent way, either it's MMA predictions or analysis, or some, especially when it comes to things that have not happened yet, when you're trying to project which way the worm might turn, um, you are going to be wrong frequently, frequently. There's no one who's immune to it. If there's someone out there who you perceive, especially on the predictions end of things, because you're sticking your neck out every time, ostensibly. I mean, I don't take them too seriously, but from, I think from a, 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 another vantage point that folks seem to find that it's like, a, it's like, it's like a, being wrong isn't a referendum on who you are or a, a, your character. It's an inevitability. It's an inevitability. If I do predictions for MMA fighting for Invicta, World Series of Fighting, Bellator, and UFC. 
you know, <laughs> I mean, the amount of times you're going to be wrong on that, given the limited amount of information I have, and given the lack of proximity to these camps, given all the other responsibilities during the course of the week that I have, you know, when folks go in and are like, oh my God, you got these predictions wrong. Yeah, no, no, no kidding. It's impossible to do this. Even if I didn't have those other distractions, I'd only be a tick or two better because that's how difficult that is to do. All you can reasonably do is try to make a rational case based on available information. That's it. That's it. And whether it's right or it's wrong, you know, it's great if you get them all right, but, you know, it's, it's, it's inevitable that you are going to run into a bunch of landmines. So really, I don't have an issue with being wrong. I don't. I don't, I don't see it as some, like, you know, uh, blemish uh, or, or something like that. I think if you're trying to go out there and troll people, that's different. If you're trying to just say things to get a reaction, that's different. If you're not trying at all, you know, just I'm just going to say whatever my predictions. I don't really care about doing them that well. Okay, that that's different. You know, you, you there should at least be some te- attempt at getting it correct because eventually you'll get things right too, right? I think again on US 185, I think I got half of them, so half right, half wrong. But um, there was just people being like, "Well, you pick a lot of chalk. Why do you pick a lot of chalk in your predictions?" Well, because they win the majority of the time. You know, I'm not going to, even if I'm wrong, I would rather go with something that seems like a safer bet if I have a limited amount of information, which I do, than go out there and just call upsets because that's more exciting for a reader to like pour over in a consumer experience. I'm not, morons do that. So anyway, um, even if I do poorly next time in predictions, even if I kill it next time in predictions, if, if you think you can do better, by all means, for all the events I do, Put your predictions up there, and not just your predictions, but your reasoning. And what you're going to find is that it's not it's 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 easy to ace one event. It's easy to ace even a month. Sometimes you can get on a hot streak. It is impossible to do well consistently over time beyond seventy percent, maybe somewhere in between fifty to seventy percent. The fact that I'm 63 percent over the last year or so is is a minor miracle, you know. But it's not about whether or not you got all the predictions correct, even though that's great if you can. It's can you cobble together a respectable case for someone? And in some cases, I didn't even do even that. And that's where I think I have to sort of own up to something. But I just want to make folks clear. Anyone out there, aside from a better, and even them I'd be very careful about, who's making claims about their ability to consistently predict MMA events, they are a liar to you. Just And I've had this conversation on my live chat before. Just so that's clear. Okay? They can't. A few, a handful out there can do, can do okay. Um, but it's, it's, it's such an imprecise thing that putting a lot of stock in it, it's more for just fun or to see if maybe someone's onto something on a certain read on a certain fight. That, that's kind of what it's all for. Every, anything else that you ascribe to it is just value your placing that isn't actually there. All right. That out of the way, um, Actually, I've done I've done worse than I had on this event, but I think getting the main and co-main event wrong, particularly in the way in which it happened, I think caused some folks to be like, "Well, you're, what happened to your predictions?" And I'm like, "I don't know. Didn't come true this time. They probably will do better next time." Anyway, let's start at the beginning. Uh, Jermaine Durandamy defeated Larissa Pacheco via TKO punches at 202 of the second round. This was one where I just simply didn't do enough of my uh, homework. Pacheco had come with a lot of um, name value out of Brazil, but or at least on the South American scene anyway. And I think Jermaine Durandamy had a... Obviously, she has a much more polished and refined skill set, but hadn't 
been in the limelight. She had mentioned she had moved back to Holland. So I think uh, me and maybe I think others as well, I just sort of put her on the back burner. Pacheco had a little bit more heat coming in. But look, listen, what was the conversation that we had going into, I think, either this podcast a week or two ago? It was about head movement. Did you see that in this fight, or I should say the lack of it? Jermaine Durandamy getting off center line when she threw and when she was sort of moving her head and parrying jabs so that she wouldn't get hit. And Pacheco ram rod straight. She just got chewed to pieces. There's more, obviously, to what uh, Duran Demi did, getting in and out at the right moments, never staying in one spot too long. Um, just everything about the way in which she approached it was fluid but precise and proactive. But to me, that was like watching Pacheco. The head never moved. All she did for de- defense was bring her hands up to her face to cover up. And she got chewed to pieces. That one... If you got that one wrong like I did, you should have seen that coming. There's no excuse for that one. Joe Duffy defeating Jake Lindsay, TKO, head kick and punches at 147 of the first round. Joseph Duffy looking amazing in his first fight. John Cavanaugh, who of course is the coach at Straight Blast Gym, Duffy being the last guy to defeat Conor McGregor. Cavanaugh had been like, well, he looked good against a guy who did not have a great UFC record, which he actually I think is totally correct. And some people got a little upset about that because he wasn't giving a guy his due, or at least that was the impression. But no, that's I think that's exactly the right tone to strike you want to give a guy his due in the proper context and the proper context is joe duffy looked great there was a certain fluidity of his movement and there was uh, i mean the range at which he occupied was perfect um and so you want to give him those things but those things are harder to do against better opposition they take those tools away from you so i thought that his analysis was maybe a little bit cold given the the buzz that he had established himself duffy did but not in any way unfair um not much to say about this one. Just the the timing on it and the and the pre- and the precision of it uh, of his striking was really kind of I wouldn't call it perfect, but pretty close to it. He did essentially whatever he wanted when he wanted. Um, Ryan Benoit defeating Sergio Pettis at the 134 of the second round. This was this was problematic. Now I don't have a good answer for what happened here, which is to say you've seen it now in this fight. You saw it in the Sam Stout Ross, Ross Pearson fight. You've seen it in the Dan Hardy Carlos Condit fight, where guys will throw a punch either to the body, to the head. They will roll with it, come up and try to throw a hook, and they basically are doing what's called dueling hooks. It's just a, it's just a gun. Uh, you know, it's just a who can draw their gun the fastest at that point. That's it. That's all that is. And in the case of Condit versus Hardy, remember Hardy landed, but Condit landed first and landed harder. In the case of Stout versus Pearson, which we'll get to in a moment, uh, Stout had gone to the body, Pearson went upstairs. And in this case, Pettis just lost. He just lost the, the foot race. He had done everything else well. He is great at using his hands to parry jabs and then throwing a counter shot with the other hand right off the top. He's good about creating angles while parrying. So he doesn't just parry in place and then throw. He'll parry step and then throw, which I really like because he changes down the angle, but you can get a little more power if you don't move too much leaning your weight to one side. I really respect that about Sergio Pettis. He mixes things up well. But the difference between he and his brother, and his brother didn't have a great night either, but his brother, his brother did have a couple of moments where he was able to to, and I mentioned it before, Sergio, he just doesn't have the same kind of power. He can land in a accumulative kind of way, but he doesn't move you. Like part of what I had expected out of Pettis, which we uh, Anthony, which we did not get, but what you had seen in the Gilbert Melendez fight, what you had seen in the Benson Henderson fight, was that in a short amount of space and time, he's able to hit you in ways that force reactions. 
And because those reactions are not part of that fighter's game plan, and because those reactions are simply in response to the stimuli they are being given in the moment, they're often poor. Poor choices. They're often defensive or immediate or rushed. And it's in that space where he's then even, even more able to make you pay. Now again, not in this fight in particular against Rafael Dos Anjos, but that's been one of his means to success. That is something you can look at his record and say he has done successfully, at least um, over big portions of his career, but not in totality. But Sergio doesn't hit guys like that. He hurts them, he lands over the top, and then moves away. Um, he's able to mix things up. He has good defensive wrestling. He, he has ability to scramble. Actually, I think he can scramble better than his brother. But when it comes to striking, when it comes to power, it simply, it's simply lacking. So I like the way he's able to counter-strike. I like the way he's able to shift his balance and his weight. And I like the way he's able to change distances. But it's that inability. And then, not that Benoit hadn't been teed up you know, and hurt, but you know, it takes so much more from Sergio to do that. And the other portion is there's just a defensive... I don't know if he takes more risks or he's more hittable in what ways... I need to go back and review the tape more closely over his career, but it just feels like I think he's been knocked down three times in the last five fights. He's got some defensive liability issues there. He just does. Uh, in this particular case, just pocket exchanging. His brother did that a little bit, but not to the same extent. Um, he just seems to not... Like, one of the things Anthony did in this fight against Javier Dos Anjos... Ultimately, it hurt him a little bit, but it's something that at least never put him in the situation that his brother was in. You know, Anthony likes to paw a little bit more from the outside. He's not so much of an inside fighter. In fact, that's where he got mauled against Rafael Dos Anjos. But that has kept him out of trouble a lot. He doesn't try to sit there and exchange with you in the pocket. He kind of just paws at you from a distance and then lights you up and then moves away. Um, Pettis is a little bit, Sergio is a little bit more willing to bite down on the mouthpiece in tight range. And as a consequence, you're just sort of flipping a coin when you do that, you know. Um, and he could be countered over the top as well. Both Pettis brothers throw good front and rear uppercuts, but they can be, they can be countered off their, uh, cross. And you saw that a little bit here with Benoit too, even when he had little other moments. Anyway, not, not, not a great start in the UFC for Sergio Pettis. Uh, Jared Rochelle defeated Josh Copeland at 3-12 excuse me, of the third round. Nothing to say about this fight at all. Benil Darius defeated Darren Cruikshank, submission rear naked choke, at 248 of the second round. This was a one, this was about I, I struggled on. Uh, and I should have had a better sense about it. Uh, Cruikshank, I thought, would just have better takedown defense and, frankly, better... I don't know. Striking defense is not quite the right way to describe it. I don't know. There was something about his game that just kind of let me down a little bit. First of all, Dariush has dramatically improved. The guy who came from jiu-jitsu, who there's a guard named after him, the Dariush guard. Um, but Cruikshank, it was interesting to me. He was... Cruikshank reminded me a little bit of Josh Kostrick from the other weekend. He's got a certain gear. And if you take things away from him, there's not another gear he can go to. Now, he tried to then wrestle with Dariush, and he had some, you know, a, good, a good couple of uh, knee-tap takedowns. But that's not an optimal strategy against a guy who's a pretty good wrestler and certainly a, a, a vastly superior um, submission threat. So, you know, and I, I guess you know, the idea was, well, if I can just keep taking him off of his feet, then he'll be a little more hesitant to throw. Not really. He's got an advantage there. He doesn't mind being taken down at all. I mean, I'm sure that's not his optimal place to be necessarily, but it's not... It's not some panic mode moment. So so that was kind of problematic. But um, 
You know, I will say that Cruikshank has better takedowns than I thought. I, hit, I thought he had some good knee taps, um, a couple of decent doubles, or at least attempts on the doubles, some good shots. He has good scrambling. But when he was hurt, what he would try to do is just walk back out, reset the position, and then try and throw what he was ordinarily good at. There wasn't anything about him that got Darius to slow down because Darius knew the range at which Cruikshank operates and was able to, A, work at it with the body kicks to the middle, and B, once he landed those, then follow up with other offense at ranges better for Dariush. And it just seemed to me a, a, a really poor game plan by Cruikshank. Um, or maybe just has a limited opportunity to, to do things against a guy like Dariush. Anyway, the end came. It looked like Dariush was trying to score an arm bar, couldn't, used uh, his left leg to trap the arm of um, uh, Cruikshank. Cruikshank saw it, slid back into... I mean, the, the, when someone has your back, you either want to have your hips really, really low or you want to be really, really high so you can come either in or out the top. Now, either way, you're going to still have scrambling you have to do, but you never just want to be in that right moment where your hips are you know, kind of even or theirs are just slightly below yours because then you're just going to be in, in a world of trouble. So he was trying to you know, slide himself back up, which he was able to do, but of course in the process of doing that, didn't hand fight well at all and then got his throat sna uh, snatched up by a guy like Darius who was a, you know, a credentialed black belt. Just not going to go well for you. And by that point, Darius had also locked up the body triangle. So, you know, it was just out of the frying pan into the fire for Darren Cruikshank. Uh, Elias Theodoru defeated Roger Navarez uh, at two, excuse me, at 407 of the second round. Not a lot to spend time on there. Ross Pearson versus Sam Stout at 133 of the second round. First of all, Sam Stout appears to be on a very significant and serious career slide. I'm a little bit worried about his health. Um, Pearson looked good from the outside, but, you know, Pearson's like, well, I'm the best boxer in the division, and certainly he is very capable with his hands. He still has good power and um, and good speed, and he is he doesn't rely as much on his kicks to set up his hands. In fact, his kicks are a bit more of a back end complement to them. But nevertheless, uh, you know, just playing those games, he just won the race that time. That's not to me an overall indictment of, uh, or I should say, an overall lifting of his game. But the fights I really want to talk about are really on the main card. It's just so the, this to me was so interesting. Henry Cejudo defeated Chris Carriasso unanimous decision 30-27 across the board. Man, look, I think some folks love this fight being like, you know, I thought Cejudo looked good, and there was a lot of talk about his wrestling and, and, and athleticism advantages, and I'm one of them. But I think this will be one of those moments where we look back and and if Cejudo can keep building on what he's got, three rounds in the UFC on a pay-per-view main card is just totally invaluable experience. This was great for Henry Cejudo. Totally, totally great. I was happy to see him struggle a little bit. Not like he was in trouble, but, you know, look, what, what I saw from Cejudo was he takes, uh, uh, um, I think, calculated risks with his offense. He's willing to throw a punch and then opposite side throw a kick in close succession and close range, even if it misses, to get the guy to cover up and and defensively react to him. I thought that obviously his wrestling was great, a great inside trip to start things off. Um, good doubles whenever he needed it. Fast, quick, hard level changes against the cage. So all that things were great, but there was a little bit of a lack of finesse. He's still kind of single shots a little bit. You know, he still kind of throws one punch and one kick and then backs out if it doesn't work quite a wide array. He's willing to throw, you know, a spinning heel kick, but if it doesn't work, he backs out. I need to see a little bit more about, you know, three, four-strike combinations being put together, which he has all the technical and 
athletic ability to pull off with the right kind of preparation. So that to me was lacking a little bit. And then on the ground, you could see that you know some guys like Randy Couture would prefer to operate from half guard, but I also saw a little bit of lack of polish in the passing fundamentals. Chris Curiosso able to get that knee shield, squeeze in on half guard whenever he wanted. Um, you know, it didn't do. Curiosso did not do a great job of controlling his posture. There were still some elements of the ground and pound that I thought. What I like from Cejudo is that in all positions in grappling, he's eager to score damage, but there's still he hasn't quite figured out how to really put it on a guy on the ground yet, either through passing and then forcing scrambles, or through passing and damage getting a guy to cover up. That that part to me is still kind of needs a little bit of work. And if you want to fight Demetrius Johnson, I just think those are essential skills to have. Um, you know, he's still trying to push the leg down and then hop over, but that's only good for one side. You, a good guard player is just going to sneak that knee back in, or he's going to come over the top and maybe hit a Kimura or an armbar. Um, it's just not. It's it's okay. It's not great, but that's also understandable for a prospect developing at the pace that he is. So uh, also in the clinch, you know, it was amazing to me. Just his ability to dig for underhooks. There was one time where Kerry also had high double underhooks, and uh, Cejudo was able to get a cross face change back out and then change directions quickly side to side to scoot space in and then re-pummel in. You know, great. I mean, just so hard to control there. Uh, I thought Carriasso was just the right opponent for a guy at this stage in, in Cejudo's career. Demonstrating Cejudo's got a lot of ability, but needs to put better combinations together. And there was a little bit of refinement in the passing. Like, if you really want to get someone to suffer, you got to do what Dos Anjos did, which is you mix up the ground and pound and the submission attempts. You really force them into using the full range of their defensive fundamentals. And if you can do that, you can do big things. Uh, Alistair Overeem defeating Roy Nelson, 30-27, 30-27, 30-27. This was a fight that I called incorrectly. I got the Zahudo fight right, but I called this fight incorrectly. But I at least had, I think, what I would, this is all you can do. Did you cobble together a reasonable case? And I, I was surprised that, so much of Overeem's game plan was to stand with him. But I wasn't surprised by the outcome, which is to say, I kind of thought it didn't really exactly work, but I kind of thought the longer Overeem stood with Nelson, the more he was just creating problems with himself with that overhand right. I mean, look, Nelson's 38 years old. His offense is limited at this point. It's the big overhand. He might he might throw a lunging uppercut at times. Um, doesn't have a whole lot else. He, has a, he can throw a straight right if he needs it. But it's just all sort of centered on one thing. And you saw Overeem really being diligent and prepared about blocking the overhand right, bringing that sort of Rampage-esque elbow and, and hand to the ear um, pretty consistently. And, you know, Overeem doing everything right, middle kicks to the body, flying knee, controlling in the clinch, um, jabbing and crossing, outside leg kicking. I mean, just mixing everything up really well. I don't think that Overeem, this is going to help him or change things against Junior Dos Santos, but certainly um, a good performance against Roy Nelson. Johnny Hendricks against Matt Brown. He also won 30-27 across the board. Um, Dana White said he didn't he didn't think too highly of Johnny Hendricks' performance, and there were moments of it that I didn't love, but there was a lot that I liked. First of all, I like that Brown. If if you know Johnny Hendricks does this bit where he puts his right hand out as a southpaw to try and measure, and then he tries to just basically be sneaky with the left. Is the left going to come straight? Is the left going to be an uppercut? Is he going to go straight to the body and back out? And when he does that, Brown is just so much more active and better in that position. Brown was throwing middle kicks to the body, elbows over the top. He was catching Johnny, and I think that's why Johnny, as time went over, a he was having success in the wrestling department, and then b you know. Standing at far enough range out, he was doing really well with with Matt. But that portion, that little 
that little hand-on range, he wasn't. Surprised that Hendricks didn't go to the body more. I really expected, I think body work just has to be a key component of any Matt Brown fight. Um, head hunting on him is hard. His defense is good. His chin is not bad at all. So it's just he uh, doesn't necessarily absorb body shots as well as he, uh, other places. But that was not a significant component of Johnny Hendricks' game. That said, I thought, again, I thought Hendricks was very sneaky with the rear uppercut. There's a, several moments where he catches him with it, um, thinking he's going to come over with a right. There was a moment there where I was expecting him to go to the body, and he came over with the uppercut. He came uh, scooping with the uppercut, even surprised me. Now, that's not meaning anything, but I was interesting to see the combinations he was putting together. He was mixing that up from the left side really well. The kicks just seem as, a, as something that he uses to set up <coughs> his hands, but okay, his hands are good enough where you don't necessarily need the kicks as a huge component of it, but what was interesting to me was his takedowns. We knew that'd be great. Uh, I think in the second round he had one. He was dumping him right into side control. Brown is, I think, very hard to hold down and pass underneath. I don't mind him necessarily recapturing guard or at least portions of his guard. But, you know, there's one moment I really want to highlight what, what Brown did to get out. There was a, He was getting stacked against the fence. And he he you could see he had a moment where he was trying to get his feet in the hips against Johnny, but that wasn't going to do a whole lot to get him off of you. So what does he do? He gets him in just enough to create space to then go for a leg lock. And why is that important? The reason why that's important is because if I try to put a leg lock on you and you limp leg out of it, which, you know, if you do it fast enough, is fine. It's, it's technical. You are the one moving away from the cage, right? Rather than me trying to push you off, which may or may not work, or if I, you know, understand how do you get your guard passed? You get your guard passed by opening your legs away from your body. If I bring my knee and my elbow together and you move to the side of me, you haven't passed my guard. You have to get in between my thigh and the, my armpit. You have to open and occupy that space. That's what passing the guard means. So if you put your feet on someone's hips and you push them away, if you there's certain ways to do it and you might be able to scramble well, but his back was against the fence. He was all trapped up. Matt Brown going for that leg lock and that moment was absolutely critical. Because it forces your opponent to move away from you. And that's the space you need to then scramble to your feet, which is exactly what he did. Genius. This is the kind of thing you see from Matt Brown. He has totally matured into the kind of fighter that is just worthy of your respect. Such a complete understanding of the game. And maybe he doesn't have quite the level of skill that he needs or athleticism. But boy, he's pretty damn close. Uh, and in the end, Hendricks, I thought, looks pretty good. All right, so the main event and co-main event. You want to uh, check? Defeating Carla Esparza at 417 of the second round. That in Jacek won is not surprising to me. How she won is kind of surprising to me. And I also kind of thought that this was not the best Carla Esparza. Let me tell you why I picked Esparza. And of course it was wrong. But let me tell you why I picked Esparza. Uh, and by the way, I picked Johnny Hendricks to win. So there you go. But. The reason why I had picked Esparza was because if you look at some of her fights, certainly Ujacek is different than other opponents she had faced. Who could deny otherwise? However, what she also was is, um, or at least what Esparza was, was good at, Esparza was great at landing the right while doing that sort of Dominic Cruz dart uh, at an angle. She could at least land on you and then move in for the takedown. If you go back and watch her performances on The Ultimate Fighter, she just had a certain approach to her offense that was utterly absent here. Now, why was it absent? Was it absent because her opponent made her look that way? Could could certainly be the case. Was it absent because she wasn't there? That's what she said mentally. I don't know. I'm a little bit sympathetic to the argument. 
I'm not saying that Ujacek wouldn't beat her in a rematch, but I don't think that was the best Esparza we could hope for. It just seemed like there was something missing. And by the way, if you ever like want to do a takedown drill, if you know someone's going to shoot with no setup, even with minimal takedown defense, you're going to stop that. But the, the key was how quickly Ujacek robbed Esparza of her competitive spirit. That, to me, was amazing. Also, what you saw from her, why was her takedown defense so good? One, when it came up straight on, she got the elbow in front of the collarbone and was able to use that to launch an elbow in tight or bring another elbow over the top, just never being able to get in on her. Or if she was able, what she was trying to do was like this modified sweep single, which is where rather than just grabbing a leg and then running the pipe, I grab a leg and then I, and then I swing my hips to the outside like your leg is a pole so that we're almost hip to hip. And then you get a different variety of finishes from there. That's what Esparza was trying to do. She was trying to do like a sweep single. And uh, she couldn't because what you saw was uh, Jacek totally dominating the angular relationship between the two. That I did not expect. It was that particular portion of her takedown defense being improved that much. You saw Esparza like trying to do the splits to almost come around and get behind her like that. Um, you know, that portion of Jacek's takedown defense in, in just utterly nullifying anything from that sweep single that got me. I will admit that that was very, very surprising to me. Um, so that's where I kind of went wrong with that. But then after that, you know, on the feet, once she was once she was demoralized, I mean, there's not much technical breakdown you need to have there. And Jacek was able to just pot shot with a single right if she wanted, um, you know, and then a flurry on the on the fence along it. But it was that portion of her takedown defense that I was like, whoa, I did not see that coming. I knew it'd be better, but I kind of thought Esparza would be able to. Um, I don't know. I'm waiting for someone to start using arm drags in MMA, man. I'm waiting for it. Because you have someone leaning into you, and in the case of Ian Jacek, bringing an elbow out to to block. Like, they're, they're driving their weight into you, and they're giving you the angular um, levers that you need to, to cause an arm drag. I'm waiting for that to happen. I'm, that's something that seems to be just missing entirely, is arm drags in transition in MMA. Um do you see them all the time in jiu-jitsu? You don't need much to get to the back. You need just a little bit. But you, that, that is something that Esparza maybe could, could look back and say, you know, is there a place for an arm drag here? And then last but not least, let's talk about this. Rafael Dos Anjos versus Anthony Pettis. 50-45, 50-45, and 50-45. I think one or two or three champions who lost their belt losing every single round. Uh, domination, man. I, I mean, just... Three things stuck out to me about this Rafael Dos Anjos performance. Number one, just how complete it was. Dos Anjos had fantastic head movement. He had kicking at all three ranges at all three places. He had um, a great counter. What was he throwing here? He was throwing a great, I'm trying to think. Was it a great counter left over the... Yes, it was a great counter left over the top. That's how he busted out his eye. So those things. Second, first of all, his his pressure on top was fantastic when he, after he got the takedown. The takedowns were there. The level changing. The timing was perfect. My God, it wasn't just that. Okay, so those, those things as well. Um, mentioned before, ground and pound and then mixing in submissions. And by the way, you notice that when he went for the Kimura, like uh, I think it was... Who was going for that Kimura... Maybe it was, uh, I'm trying to think, was it, 
was it Cruikshank going for a Kimura on Dariush? There was someone going for a Kimura that was that... Oh, no, Pettis was going for a Kimura at the very end on Dos Anjos, where uh, Dos Anjos was either all the way past or maybe had half guard, and you see this, like, desperation Kimura attempt underneath from Anthony Pettis. Here's the problem with doing that, guys. If 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 someone's already passed and I'm trying a Kimura, first of all, they can just jump around and armbar you. But the other point is, even if you're in half guard, when you go, remember what I said before, how do you get your guard passed? If your elbow and your knee are connected, you have not been passed. They may be to the side of you, but you're not passed. you got to occupy that space. Well, when you go for a Kimura, right, and you're underneath, and you're opening one side of your body to close the other, the other leg has to come up and close the space. Well, if you don't, they're just going to occupy it. You have to leave a huge portion of your body open to go for those desperation Kimuras. And by the way, if they pass, then you have to come around and take the back, which is another thing you have to do. You have to roll your body out, flatten it, roll it over top of itself, and then come around and take the back. You can't just sit there. It's not going to work. Especially against someone like Dos Anjos. It's not going to work. So anyway, he had good submission defense. He had good pressure on top. He had good. He could take the back whenever he wanted. His cardio never faded. His power was there. And more, that was one thing. Two, the, the pressure he put on. The, the first, now he corrected this in the second and the third round, but the first round, Pettis spent the entire time, go back and watch, walking into Dos Anjos' power. Now, Pettis is a better striker than I'll ever dream of being, but this seemed to be a tactical mistake because he didn't keep doing it. He stopped doing it in the second, third, and fourth, and fifth rounds to the extent that he was any portion of the game on the feet. Um, he kept walking directly into his power. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Dos Anjos' uh, ability to cut off the cage, fantastic. Um, and more than that, he was just proactive. There was one, Anthony Pettis was just kind of throwing a little bit, but just pot-shotting a little bit and waiting for things to happen. And so that's not going to work, especially against someone who's so well-rounded and can change phases of the game on you as quickly as Dos Anjos. But the thing that really stood out to me, um, and we can break down all the different levels of technique, I thought Dos Anjos' head movement and then throwing the right over the top and then coming back with the left um, or throwing a body kick. He, he did this a lot too. Dos Anjos would throw a body kick, get Pettis to react, uh, by throwing his right, dodge it, and then come over the top and crack him with the left. That was awesome, too. You know, so many things he was doing. Being proactive, getting reactions out of Pettis because he already had setups in mind to finish him out. All kinds of great stuff. But the thing that caught me, and they talked about on the broadcast, was the physicality. He was getting roughed up in the clinch, uh, both the wrestling clinch and, of course, when they were just sort of pummeling for that, that plum. Um, that was a problem, but it was more than that. It was the speed differential. This was something I did not see coming. I knew that he had a good snap on his leg kicks, and that he obviously had a great shot, for, especially for MMA purposes. I didn't think the hand speed was going to be so much in the favor of Dos Anjos. That caught me by surprise. Very much caught me by surprise. I, I, and, and, and not just in the fifth round where you know Pettis was tired and beat up. In the first round! In the first round, go back and look at the speed and the pop on the things, whatever strike that Dos Anjos is throwing. It's way quicker. And I don't think Pettis, maybe he did expect it, I don't know. It looked like he certainly had no answer for it, one way or the other. The speed got me completely shocked, shocked by that speed. Totally and totally shocked. Um, and obviously the fact that he never got tired over the course of five rounds made things all the worse. You know, Pettis had his moments, but... It just looked like to me, but from the completeness of Dos Anjos' game, winning in literally every single phase of the game, 
um, and the physical dominance that he had, and then the speed he he had without letting up any kind of pace. I mean, and you know, throwing a uh, a right leg kick, a left hand over the top, getting Pettis to throw a right, and either counteracting it again with his own right or level changing in for a takedown, which he did twice, was amazing. Pettis had no. I thought Pettis's takedown defense would be so much better, not early, but I thought as he adjusted over time, it would get better, like he did kind of against Melendez. That did not materialize at all. Um, Pettis's takedown defense was was not good. Pettis had no ability to scramble once he got down. He was good about getting his back to the cage, and I think that saved him a lot. You saw that when his back was on the canvas, that's when he was taking the most amount of punishment, and that's when he was being susceptible to the Kimura uh, attempts that uh, Dos Anjos was trying. And they were good ones too, by the way. Credit to Pettis for scooting his hips out, getting flat on, excuse me, getting his shoulders flat, and then being able to snake the arm away. That was a good defense that he had because, boy, that was close. Um, but it was some of those small things that I'd, I never, and maybe I should have seen it, I never saw it coming, how much a speed differential that was going to be. And I also kind of thought that Pettis just didn't have a lot, uh, didn't have any urgency in his offense. He'd throw a body kick and move. He'd throw a body kick and a straight punch and move. Um, he had some success with the uppercut. He was getting Dos Anjos to block with the head kick. And then when he'd do that, he'd come back, step back, re-enter the, the same range with a rear uppercut. Those were having success. Or he would get Dos Anjos to throw the right, step aside, and then have a front uh, a front uppercut underneath the arm, uh, a la Arlovsky, Matt Yushchenko. That was coming underneath. That was having some success. But, man, I... I, uh, wow. So here's where I overestimated Pettis. I overestimated the urgency with which he operates. It's not good enough. Two, this I already knew, but, um, his scrambling needs a ton of work. Sergio, I think, is a little bit better as a scrambler. People talked about his jiu-jitsu. Like, it's fun to be the guy who can jump on a guillotine. It's fun to be the guy who can slap on an arm bar. But the reality is that's a small part of jiu-jitsu. And you, you're going to catch guys with that in the gym. You're going to catch maybe even some good guys with that, you know, because it is a pretty lethal thing. He did catch Melendez and he did catch Henderson and so forth with those kinds of things. But you're not going to catch somebody good with that. You're just not. Unless you hurt them badly. But just jiu-jitsu for jiu-jitsu, you're, you're, that's not, that's not going to help you. That's really a, There's so much more to jiu-jitsu than the ability to snap on a quick, um, you know, guillotine choke. It's, it's, that's just a compliment to his striking as far as I'm concerned. You know, his ability to, to recapture guard or get a cross face um, and get his hips back out for a scramble. I mean, look at Jose Aldo. When Chad Mendes gets on him, what is he doing? He goes for a upa sweep on one side. What happens? Mendes shifts his hips and wait to the other side to prevent, to prevent Aldo from doing that. So Aldo immediately races back to the same side where Mendes has already planted his weight to either roll him over or create enough pocket space to then scoot his hips back out. That is what you call scrambling. And people ask me, who would you favor now, Aldo or Pettis? Boy, looking back now, seeing what Dos Anjos was able to do with that speed differential, I don't know. I might have to go with Aldo now. And I don't want to over underrate him either, but you know, who knows exactly what's going to happen. No one knows, but that the way in which the speed of Dos Anjos was able to give him so many problems, I was shocked by that. I was really and truly shocked by that. Uh, in the end, though, um, you know, we'll see what happens, but just a virtuoso performance from Rafael Dos Anjos. He reminds me of Matt Brown, but took it to the one more level um, in his technical improvement. So there we go. Uh, let's quickly touch on the IBJJF. 
if I may. Uh, just the highlights here. A couple of guys I want to highlight. Uh, Dylan Danis, who's a brown belt, brown belt out of Marcelo Garcia's. He took double gold at brown belt. My God, what a performance he had at this tournament. Oh, you know, he had this bit where he would pass guard to one side, or at least attempt to pass. And what you do is, there's a lot of different ways to, 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 you know, to block a pass, but you have to get your hips square to them. Right, that's what you need. You need to be able to get around and face them. One, and there's many ways to do that, of course. But um, he would threaten to pass to one side. And one thing guys will do is, if you threaten to pass to one side, they'll bring the opposite foot over the top to the shoulder to push off of you and square your hips up. And so he would get guys to do that in quick succession. So he'd go left, they'd come over. He'd go right, they'd come over. He'd go back to the left for them to, to bring the foot over the top. And when they did would grab the near leg and then sit for a knee bar. Oh, what a genius move that is. What a genius. So he gets them going side to side, and he basically is getting them to bring the leg that he wants into position by threatening with the pass. He just slides right around it like it's a like it's a stripper pole and then slid on for the knee bar. Oh, my God, I was amazed. Totally, totally blown away by that. What a performance by Dylan Danis. He looked amazing at Brown Belt. Uh, a couple matches that you want to go back and find if you can. Lucas Hocha coming back in the last 30 seconds against Tim Spriggs. Tim Spriggs at a team loader. And, you know, you can say whatever you want about that team. Tim Spriggs is a beast of a competitor. A beast. Has some of the best snap downs with his gi that, uh, of anyone in the Black Belt division in any weight class. Unbelievable. Totally physical guy who can just break guys with his physicality. And by the way, Mateus Denise, uh, who went against Vinny Magalesh, Tim Spriggs, I think, rolled over him at uh, maybe the New York Open or something like that. So uh, Tim Spriggs, it was his first tournament in Black Belt. I think he got third uh, because he lost to Hocha. That was one to note. Uh, worm guard was uh, in full display. You know what's funny about the worm guard? When Keenan uses it, it's really offensive. When other guys use it, it's just some stalling nonsense. Um, Victor Estima used a good Estima lock in the earlier rounds. Uh, but here, anyway, here were the winners. Bruno Malfacine defeated Kyo Terra with bow and arrow choke at a minute and 30 seconds. Kyo uh, Teja, he got hoard on the restart, but Bruno Malfacini, uh, Malfacini, excuse me, I mean, it's amazing when you watch jiu-jitsu at the, at the black belt levels. It looks nothing like it does in MMA. Many like passing someone's guard at the black belt level is like virtually impossible to do. When a guy when a guy does it, it's like a minor miracle. But um, a few things you see at all levels work. The bow and arrow choke works on a lot of people. Bow and arrow is like you kind of get perpendicular with them. You take their lapel choke. So if you're on their left hip perpendicular with them, almost like a mount. You grab their left leg, you use your right hand to go around their collar to choke them, and you pull like a bow and arrow. So um, that's common. And then the Toriando pass, the bullfighter pass, that's a pass that seems to work at all levels. But like, you know, an X pass, these things just don't work the same way that they do. You know, leg weave passes work to the semi-same extent, but a lot of stuff at that game just doesn't work. Uh, Polo Meow closed out with his brother at Light Feather. Johnny Grippo defeated, I can't pronounce this guy's name. Um, oh, it was, um, was it Moisinho? I forget who it was. Was it Osvaldo Moisinho? Um, anyway, 6-4. to four. Johnny Grippo, by the way, Marcelo Garcia's team had a huge tournament. JT Torres just rolled over AJ Agazarm. Almost had a Musu Semi, or a Musu Chemi, however you pronounce her last name, Tammy. She went against Michelle Nicolini. Remember the girl who got her armbar yanked across her back? Um, uh, JT Torres almost had that on AJ Agazarm. Uh, Leandro Lowe defeated Otavio Souza 5-0. That was a great one. Uh, Keenan Cornelius closed out with Guto or Gus um, Campos. Uh, Lucas Leitch defeated Lucas Freitas 20-2. That was just, I mean, 
Oh, that was that was Lucas Hocha, Lucas Freitas, same guy. Uh, he had tied it up 2-2, and then Leitch just like rolled over him. Bernardo Faria closed out with Leo Nogueira. Alexander Trans defeated James Popolo in like 17 seconds. And Popolo's a knee bar guy, and he lost by knee bar. Bernardo Faria then defeated Leandro Lowe by lapel choke. So Bernardo Faria, by the way, if you ever go to New York City, you got to roll with Marcelo's. Bernardo Faria is the, one of the nicest guys in combat sports. Shakes even all the white belts. Shakes all their hands when he teaches a class and smiles the whole time. And he was a guy, he gave me a big lesson in shoulder pressure. Um, and uh, he had a great win over Urbeth Santos doing that Frank Mir, Dan Christensen knee bar with your own body, like no hands. Um uh, from an over-unders pass. That was incredible. And then real quickly, Gabby Garcia defeated Mackenzie Dern in the open via bread cutter. Not even a technical bread cutter. Just like she he-manned it. Um, Gabby Garcia was the only super heavy. Uh, Dominica, I can't pronounce her last name. Obolente, she is another one of Marcelo Garcia's girls. Uh, women, I should say. Defeated Tammy Griego via a mounted gogo plata. Oof. And I posted that on my Facebook wall. Uh, Anna Cordero defeated Andresa Cojea. Um, Monique Medeiros Elias defeated Luisa Montero out of Unity BJJ. Beatrice Mesquita had an awesome match with Angelica Galvan. Mackenzie Dern defeated Temi Musumechi. I keep saying Musumechi. Musumechi. Um, let's see. And then Gazari Bandera defeated Bibiana Bandera. And then Marcelo Lawton defeated Sofia Amaranch at Roosterweight. And then quickly, quickly, I know I've gone way longer than I'm supposed to. Um, PBC had their debut on Spike. I thought the event looked big. I thought the commentators hadn't quite worked out the gelling. I would be happy with just Jimmy Smith and Antonio Tarver, but whatever. Um, I thought Dana Jacobson was good. I'm not so sure it's a good idea to have boxers who are a little bit over the hill on. They're not quite so forthcoming with language. That didn't work out so well. But that event, I, there's been glory events there. There's been a number of UFC events here. It's the one in Ontario. Um, not the First Bank Center. Because uh, that's the one in Colorado. I forget the name of it, but it's the one out in um, Glory 10 was there. What, what event was that? Hold on. Yeah, Citizens Bank Arena. Oh, Citizens Business Bank Arena. Excuse me. It's a good venue, modern venue. Nice, uh, you know, it's um, um, easy to get to, I suppose. And they made it a big, big fight feel. Anyway, Andre Berto did not look good early. He was kind of getting outboxed. I thought the fluidity and the outside movement of Berto, excuse me, of Jose Cito Lopez was giving a lot of problems. But eventually what you saw was a really quick, if kind of still stiff, jab, uh, stiff posture anyway on the part of um, Andre Berto. Doubling up on the jab, which completely opened up the right hand. It got the range better for him. It got Jose Cito Lopez thinking about uh, combination punching. And he was able to score with the right hand, I think, in the sixth round. Knock him down not once but twice. Um, bit of an early stoppage, but Berto sort of back on track against Lopez. Great first show for um, PBC. Um, you know, the the other fights, I mean, I think, um, who else won? It was, uh, um, who's the heavyweight Mexican kid whose name is now escaping me? Uh, Chris Ariola. he looked okay, not great at all, um, and then um, Thurman was on the card as well, he looked alright, but really just Andre Berto was the one I sort of wanted to focus in on, seems like he'll be back on future PBC on Spike broadcasts if they have, if PBC anyway has any sense about it, but I thought the broadcast looked pretty good, I don't have any attendance figures, um, do I? No, no I don't, but uh, in any event, um, it looked pretty good, it looked pretty good on Spike, it definitely had the kind of appeal that they wanted and they had ref cams 
on the foreheads of all the referees. I thought that was an interesting note as well. Okay, we got to go. I know um, Jean Pascal lost as well in a slugfest and a thousand other things happened. I'll link up a bunch of results in the post on MMA Fighting where this is. I appreciate everyone tuning in. Thank you so much. I'm sorry there's no video this week. I'll bring it back as soon as I can. My God, we've gone 50 minutes. What am I doing with my life? Uh, follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas and of course Facebook.com slash Luke T Sports. Um, see you guys next week and enjoy the fights.